0: Welcome to American History Untucked. I'm your host, David Silkenhead. My guest for this show is Rebecca Onion. Rebecca is probably best known as the curator of the Vault blog on Slate, where she posts historical objects and, and documents five times a week. If you hadn't had a chance to look at some of these items, I highly recommend that you pause the podcast right now and head over to Slate and take a look at Some of the really beautiful items she posts there. One thing I discovered only fairly recently was that Rebecca was not only the curator of this blog cited at Slate, but that she has an academic career. She has a PhD she finished a couple of years ago from the University of Texas and the American Studies Department, and has done some really interesting work on the intersection of childhood and the history of science. So in our conversation today, we talk some about the vault and about writing for a general public and about how to communicate the work that historians do with the general public. And we discuss her research. Uh, She's just finished a postdoc in Philadelphia on childhood and science in the 20th century. Here's my conversation with Rebecca Onion. Well, Welcome to the show, Rebecca. It's great to have you on.
1: Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
0: So you were mentioning right before we started recording that you drove for six hours yesterday. Well, what kind of road trip were you on?
1: I was, uh, I went to, I live in Athens, Ohio, and I went to Washington, D.C. for a friend's baby shower. Oh, wow. So, Oh, it's actually closer than you would think. It's only five hours and 45 minutes. So, <laughs>
0: uh, as a, Short drive.
1: Yeah. As a veteran of a, a three-year separated marriage, uh, it seems like nothing.
0: Yeah, well, I, I did the I did the four year separated marriage where we were 24 hour drive apart, and that's a
1: I can't even believe that.
0: Um, <laughs> um and, and we were driving between uh North Carolina and North Dakota, and and there quite honestly isn't a whole lot to stop or see between those two places.
1: Good lord,
0: uh, a couple places. I, well, I always wanted to stop at the the Bourbon Trail in Kentucky because that was always. One oh, place yeah. sort of drove through, but it never seemed like a really great idea when I had another five hours of driving ahead of me. Um,
1: um, yeah, I know that feeling well. Tourism is not encouraged by the
0: yeah, long, <laughs> these, long drive. These
1: rigors of the long drive.
0: Well, yeah. Now that I'm here in Scotland, you know, a long drive here is an hour and a half, and they they think it's tiny islands. Or everything everything is close by, so it's a whole new sort of geographical sense for me.
1: Seems so relaxing.
0: Well. I had bagpipes playing this morning that was keeping me awake. So like, oh,
1: well, well, never mind. Things you, had, things you don't have
0: in Ohio. Uh, yeah, yeah. Your office
1: certainly not.
0: So I think probably most people know you at least initially from your work with Slate. You you run the uh, their blog site, uh, The Vault, which I guess you've done since 2012. That That's
1: right. It right. uh, started. In November two thousand and twelve actually the same week that I defended my dissertation, I launched it <laughs> so that was a that crazy- seems either
0: a brilliant yeah. idea or a really awful idea <laughs> I
1: was i I thought it was gonna be uh, not as stressful as it was, but then I was uh, you know I'd already moved to Philadelphia for my postdoc and then I went back down to Austin to defend and uh, and I was trying to see friends defend uh launch the blog all at the same time <laughs> and it was. A week of not much sleep, let's say.
0: <laughs> and and so for those people who, who haven't visited the vault, w- could you describe what the vault is?
1: Sure. Um, it is a daily blog, or I should say five times a week. Um, and what I try to do is every day share a historical document that's particularly um, – I think of them as sort of like sticky documents <laughs> – like uh or or sometimes i think of them as thick documents um so something that is particularly compelling or emotionally resonant or surprising or beautiful sometimes um i try to be somewhat visual with it and then i also write a between 200 and 400 word uh sort of explication of the document um and so I'm an Americanist, so it usually ends up being sort of uh, stuff from American history. Also, Mm -hmm. the audience, obviously, is mostly American, if not completely. Um, And actually, that's something that I'm looking to, not the audience, but the coverage is something I'm looking to expand. Mm -hmm. But that's maybe the different topic. But uh, so um, it ends up being sort of like an enhanced, um, you know, it's much more than a Tumblr, (laughs) I'd say, but it sort of ends up um, being a, a... a series of hopefully compelling documents that um, that hopefully stick with you or are interesting in some greater way than just, just what they are.
0: Now, now, what's how did this whole thing start? Did yeah. you approach Slate and say, hey, I, I just finished my PhD. I have this really great idea. How, how did this all come about?
1: Well, they had the idea for it, actually, for the blog. Um, hmm. So David Plotz, who's the editor of Slate, uh, when, was taking a tour of the National Archives uh, behind the scenes. And they were showing him a series of, you know, their superstar documents.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: So, um, and he loved this one that one of the archivists showed him. That was, a, let's see, it was a, a letter to Lincoln during the Civil War. Uh, um, he, it was concerning the matter of a young man who had deserted a Union Army soldier who had deserted and then returned to the Army. Um, I think he went home to take care of something at home that needed to be taken care of, um, and then returned and hoped to be let in again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so uh, someone in the Army had written to Lincoln asking, you know, what do we do about this guy? Um, he deserted, so technically, you know, he should be punished. Um, but, you know, he now he wants back in. And so, so there's sort this, you know, an official document, and then at the bottom, Lincoln has written in his own hand, Uh, let him fight rather than be shot, Um, which is kind of, you know, funny little Lincolnism. Um, And so David, the editor, really liked it was intrigued by this document. And so he ended up posting it on Browbeat, which is this late culture blog, um, with sort of a similar vaulty esque uh, explanation, short explanation of what the context was. And it went, it didn't Uh, I would say, go viral, but it got a lot of shares, as they say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, you know, they sort of, the editors had this idea, you know, if this is out there, and I've seen all these documents at the National Archives, surely there are more things like that that we could be putting on slate. And then the next, so they had this idea. And then the next thing was that I have a, you know, this is maybe a little bit of nepotism. Nepotism combined with worth, I would say, I hope. Um, but well, I have a good friend from high school through now who is the deputy editor there. Oh, okay. So she thought of me as someone who might be good for this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, you know, to back up, I, I, before I went to graduate school, I worked at a magazine and as a freelancer. So I have some background in writing non-academic stuff for the public.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so and I had to write, you know, I, talk, I had conversations with them, and then I wrote, I think it was three or four sort of sample posts, um, and wrote a memo with other ideas for what I might do, you know, archives I might look at, or um, angles I might take. Um, and then they said, okay, let's go ahead, let's try it. And then I went ahead.
0: So how do you find all of these documents? I'm assuming you're not visiting archives around the country saying, show me the pretty things, right?
1: Wish I could. Sometimes I do that. Um, you know, I went to a couple of places and when I was still in Philadelphia for my postdoc, I would sometimes go. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there, It's a big combination of things. So one of the biggest things that happens is that I have um, a big RSS reader full of blogs from archives and special collections and libraries, which, you know, a lot of people now, I mean, as you Know, are trying to promote their collections through various social media blogs and Twitter and Tumblr and all these places. So, I do a lot of reading of my RSS feed of all the sort of updates from these various places. Um, And I partly do that because I also run the Twitter feed that's associated with the vault.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, A little plug it's at Slate Vault. (laughs) And I'm very proud of it. I think it's good. Um, But as part of the Twitter feed, you know, I, I need to, I sort of am trying to keep my finger on the pulse of what's sort of happening on the history internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, re- I do a lot of reading of these, of these other, you know, archive and special collections blogs. Um, I also have a big list of digital archives that I, you know, whenever I have a, you know, a night, maybe I just am at home watching TV or whatever. I'll, I'll just open up my laptop and sort of flip through digital collections. Um, I find a lot of stuff that way. Um, And sometimes people will write to me. Um, You know, I've gotten to know archivists over the years or, you know, special collections people or communications people from institutions who will sometimes write me and say, oh, we put this up recently Mm -hmm. and you or et cetera. Um, And the same thing happens with scholars sometimes who see something in their travels. Mm -hmm. Um, And then sometimes I'll find stuff when I'm reading for another project. So if I'm reading for, um, you know, revising my dissertation or if I'm reading for um, another story that I'm writing, I'll see something that the author of a book has sort of mentioned and then I'll track it down in all the various ways that one would track such a thing down.
0: Sure. So, what goes in then to writing the two to four hundred word uh, explication of the document? What is it you're trying to do there? Uh,
1: I think of it as I'm trying to I'm trying to demystify the document a little bit, um, and I'm also trying to sort of give the reader a, a way to find out more if they want. So, you know, the use of hyperlinks is an amazing thing. <laughs> Um, there's, it's funny cause before I, you know, before I started doing this, um, you know, as I was teaching in my last couple of years at the university of Texas, um, and you know, as we all do, I had many conversations with my students about, you know, uh, reliable historical information on the internet
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and, you know, how to figure out what is and what isn't, you know, something that you should be trusting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I would have. I would be much better at that conversation now um, than I was back then. Um, there's a lot of, you know, when it comes to doing research to try to figure out how to write these two to 400 yeah. things, some, a lot of which is, are on topics that aren't my, you know, academic area of specialty, which is 20th century American, um, science in childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so, you know, I come up with like sort of like the standard historical questions, you know, uh, What's the context? Um, you know, how can I figure out who the players were, who the actors were, who were involved with? You know, the making of this document. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's something about the document that puzzles me that I don't understand, you know, I try to, you know, track it down. Um, you know, were there other documents like this? How common was this? How uncommon was this? Um, you know, basically, how did this happen? These kinds of things. Um, and so then I'll, I'll most of what I do. Uh, is to look around on the internet. And theres a lot of it sounds obvious, but there's a lot of writing that is on the internet now that's by either by scholars trying mm-hmm. to copy their own work. Um, you know a lot of really good academic blogs out there. Um, a lot of sort of encyclopedias written by like you know, for example, like there's a, an encyclopedia of Georgia, an encyclopedia of North Carolina. That are sort of, you know, uh, academic slash credible,
0: mm-hmm. that,
1: you know, have been put on the internet to try to encourage people to, you know, find good information. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff is on Google books. Um, you know, in, in a limit, like I do use that, I feel kind of guilty about it. Cause a lot of times I'm, I'm looking up something very specific and then I'll, I'll trust the I don't feel guilty about this part. I'll trust the academic, you know, the the university press books that get returned. Mm-hmm. Um, those first, and I'll find out, you know, what the scholar said about whatever the thing is that I'm looking at. Um, but I don't read the whole book. That's what I feel guilty about. Um,
0: if you're doing five of these a week, I don't think you have that much to feel guilty about. But uh, well,
1: you know, we love to feel guilty, right, as academics.
0: Fair, but, fair point.
1: Um, you know, and but also, you know, I'll often. um, you know, and this may be a chicken and an egg kind of situation where a lot of times I'll write about stuff that I've heard about or that is in my area of interest. And then of course I can go to my bookshelves and pull off, you know, the book that I read for orals mm-hmm. that I that is related to the to the document. And then of course like I feel, you know, whatever. I'll I'll cite the book and then I'll usually link to the Amazon page. Hopefully maybe I get some people some <laughs> book sale. Sure. Um and then so, and then I'll also I'll look on JSTOR. Um you know, same thing. I'll try to find, you know, has anyone written about this topic in um, various ways?
0: Now, when you're writing for Slate, you're presumably going to have a very diverse audience with a variety of you know, degrees of experience and background with, with history. Yeah. Um, are you ever worried that you're pitching the, you know, the brief contextual statement? you know that exactly the right level? I think that would be what would be the hardest part about this is to Figure out how to say something to to that audience.
1: It's rough. It's like a, I mean, you know, there. It's a fine line because it's like you don't want to underestimate them either because sometimes, you know, the people who read Slate might be interested in a a disagreement that historians have had over something related to the document. Um. So actually, a good example on this past Friday, um, I posted a roundup of. Places on the web that where you could find digitized um, home homeowner, homeowners loan corporation redlining maps, mm-hmm. and there because of the Tanahashi Coates uh, piece on reparations, there's been a lot of conversation around redlining and housing discrimination. Um, and this was in the Atlantic last mm-hmm. month. In case this podcast you're listening to it far in the future, <laughs> <laughs> so this would have been you know the June 2014 Atlantic. Um, And so, you know, so I posted this post, and as I was doing the research for it, you know, um, again, this is not my area of expertise, but an area that I'm interested in. um, I found mention online of a scholar at Penn who had done work with some homeowners loan corporation maps from Philadelphia um, and had found that actually, you know, although we sort of like casually call them redlining maps, there is not much evidence that the maps themselves which were made in the in the mid 30s um were used in later um federal housing administration instances of discrimination um and that actually although the maps look damning because there are neighborhoods that are coded as you know hazardous or in decline and that part of the coding was you know that there was the presence of non white people mm-hmm. there um the you know this is such as Lisa Hillier is the scholar um I think that's her name. Yeah, so um, Hillier, anyway, either is Lisa or Jennifer. Uh, <laughs> maybe I should look it up. Um, but yeah, so, so Hillier is arguing that, you know, she found in her deep, much deeper historical research than I, Rebecca Onion, am able to do while writing this 200 to 400-word post that, uh, that, you know, people who were in those hazardous neighborhoods in Philadelphia in the 30s did get loans sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't necessarily exclude them from that. And so she's arguing that it's not, at least in Philadelphia, at least where she looked, um, the maps weren't necessarily as sort of, you know, like a, like a smoke, we shouldn't treat them as a smoking gun of housing discrimination or like an origin, sort of like a, like an evil origin, <laughs> uh, like red flag of housing discrimination. Sure. Now that is a historical, that's something that fascinates historians, right? Like we'd
0: mm-hmm.
1: love to sure. be like, Oh my God, well, maybe that's not what we thought, or maybe that's something else. And, you know, it, I wonder if this is true in North Carolina, and I wonder if this is true in Texas and you know these kinds of things but um but for the internet uh it's much better, it would be much better to be able to say uh redlining maps you know like this is it you know the the, the headline the headline is super important <laughs> and and it should be pretty unambiguous um you know in order to
0: to lure it, the people in to. To see yeah. the ambiguity, yeah,
1: exactly, and to be, and to be, you know, clickable, and maybe almost more importantly now, to be shareable. Yeah. You know, that people will want to um, associate their name with when they're passing it around. Um,
0: so, how important is it when you're figuring out which which things to put on the vault that it be both topical, like the like this piece in reference to the, the article in the Atlantic. And how important is it that it's something that could be viral?
1: Oh, um, those are often associated. Yeah. Um, and often, but not always. And with history topicality is really tricky because it can look, look super strained to, to try really hard. Like I've done a couple where I tried really hard to sort of connect a present day controversy to something historical. And sometimes it just doesn't work or there's, You know, you can't like honestly, historically make a connection without committing a historical sin of that you don't really want to commit. And also, if it's not really clear what the connection is, it's it's um, it actually doesn't do as well as this. I mean, it doesn't get clicked as much or shared as much because people are like, well, why should I be looking at this? You know, I can tell people are smart and they can see through a transparent bid to try to piggyback on you know, something that everyone is talking about. Um, at the same time, you don't necessarily want to look like you're, you know, operating in a different plane of existence apart from everything that anyone is talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a fine line. Um, the, the question of whether I pick things because they seem like they'll be viral versus, um, you know, worthy Mm. (laughs) The question that concerns me more or that I think about more. Um, And that's.
0: Do you get advice from the people at slate about what kinds of things they, they want?
1: Sometimes, actually not as often as you would think. Um, I, you know, I'll get, I'll get feedback when things are like, I'll get feedback from the very top when something is something that they love a lot. And that sort of shapes me in -hmm. a way. Oh, they like that. Maybe they'll like this also, or you know. Um, but that's not a imperative from them. You know, that's a that's, I guess maybe soft power in some way. (laughs) Like they're, yeah. You know, we we really like this, and and as a person who likes praise, I'm like, ah, I want to find more things, (laughs) that so that they will like me. Um, I, I do. I have a really good relationship with my editor, my the editor that I work with on a daily basis. Um. And I really like him and respect his judgment. And he, a lot of times if I, if there's an item that I'm either, I'm not sure if it's been overdone, you know, too many people have been talking about it. Or I don't know um, if it's, if it'll read or if it's interesting enough. Or I don't know, this will happen sometimes. um, If I don't know if it's too, like if I'll look, sometimes when documents are, really sad and tragic and awful mm-hmm. as you know, historical documents can sometimes be. Um, I get concerned that if I, if I run them, all, it'll sort of diminish them or it'll be flippant or something um, or that, you know, it, it, that they deserve more than a 400 word. Sure. Um, and so I'll, you know, with, with that, I'll, I'll ask, like I'll send him an email, a quick email and just say, you know, what do you think about this post? Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: Especially and, when it's going on Slate, which has some um, occasionally kind of flimpant articles. You don't want your your post about the Holocaust photos to be next to uh, mm-hmm. you know the right way to cook broccoli or something, you know, and uh, yeah, occasionally appear on Slate. So
1: for sure, um, and that's and that's a problem. I mean, that's something that I think about a lot with darker stuff like that. Like we ran a a letter from an American soldier who had. I would uh, been there right when um, American soldiers came into doc Dachau. Mm -hmm. I've never said that word. Yeah. Um, And so, and, and it's really, I mean, it's disturbing, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's, and with that one, I was actually really glad, you know, I, um, I, I had to, because it wasn't a public domain thing. It was at the national archives, but it wasn't public domain. Um, i found the grand grandkid of, uh, or no, actually, sorry, um, the daughter of the man who had written it. Um, cause I had to ask her for permission to put it up. Um, and that was actually the fact that she, that I got a chance to sort of go back and forth with her and say, you know, cause she was worried a little bit about that. Um, you know, because especially cause the tagline of the blog is, um, I think it's historical oddities and treasures or hold mm. on, tagline. Um, um, and she, you know, she said it's not really an oddity or a treasure. You know, it's a, you know, historical treasures, oddities, and delights is the tagline. Um, and she was like, definitely not a delight. <laughs> yeah. You know, and 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 I don't know if it's a try. I don't, you know, she was she was concerned that it wasn't necessarily going to fit in. So, um, you know, I, I sent her a couple instances of other posts that I'd written that were, you know, um, about. Sort of, I guess, for better lack of a better word, uh, dark subjects. Um, to try to say, you know, I'm here's how I'll handle it. You know, here's the kind of writing that I'll do. Um, but, but that was a rough one. Um, so things like that, and the, and stuff with, uh, you know, posts that have. It's a really. I actually think I might. Write, I might write something longer about this at some point because it's really interesting to me how racism instances of historical racism and also sexism discrimination um have sort of sort of circulate online um because we you know some of the most you know most shared vault items have been instances of historical racism Hmm. and but it is very interesting because there are there are things that we won't I, I found a, um, it was a, I think it was seventies or eighties, uh, comic book that was, a basically like a racist Batman. <laughs> um, really? Yeah. it's at, It was at the Wolfsonian, um, in their devil, digital archives. They had, a uh, an instance of a comic book. I think it was, uh, written by someone associated with the, um, because the guy who wrote the Turner diaries, you know, the,
0: um, yeah. Um. The name is Liberty, but uh,
1: William Luther Pierce. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm using my uh Google capabilities. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, someone associated with that, yeah, this is a 1978 book, so that makes sense. Um, had written this sort of racist Batman where you know, white Batman comes back and gets rid of all the black people who've moved into the neighborhood. And so, you know, the images are, um, you know, straight sort of like Jim Crow era minstrelsy. Mm-hmm. Um, And, and, you know, I thought about it and I actually sent it to my editor and we talked about it and we decided we didn't want to reproduce that.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. We didn't want it to sort of, you know, be on our, on our, under our names. Like we didn't want to be, you know, republishing this, um, comic and, but it, and the same thing happened to me with, a um, recently I saw a tweet about a fifties British book by a man called B- why men hate women.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, I don't know if you saw this, but it sort of circulated a bunch. There was a, there was a picture of par- a page of the table of contents that sort of made its way around. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's split into different, uh, you know, areas of life in which men hate women. So there's a section on the office and a section on romantic relationships and a section on, um, you know, in school and, you know, it's just misogyny. You know, it's, you know, pure and simple.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, and I, I I requested the book through interlibrary loan, sort of thinking, oh maybe I'll, you know, this seemed to do well on Twitter when it was just the table of contents. Maybe I'll try to do something with it. Maybe I'll write a post. Um, and I got it through interlibrary loan, and I just thought, yeah, I don't know about this. Like mm-hmm. the the way that it's been circulating has been as a joke. You know, look how horrible this guy was but there's not much depth to the conversation around it or maybe it, you know I I don't know I I felt like I had seen responses to the tweet tweets in which people had sort of jokingly been like well ha ha but I do agree with what they said about what he said about you know women talk too much at the office or something and I'm like wait a second I don't I don't know if um I don't know if I I want to Not that I don't want to write about it, but that I don't necessarily want to reproduce it in the kind of way that the vault reproduces things, which is a very, um, you know, I try for it to be, you know, I try in my text to be all about context, but sometimes I see, I see the the documents that I put out there getting recirculated without the text, or I see tweets that indicate that the person who, uh, who is tweeting me has not read the text.
0: (laughs) They they skip to the document and the, the striking image or what have you.
1: Exactly, um which I kind of don't blame them for because you know I sometimes do that. I always try to go back and read the text before especially before responding to it or you know engaging with it in any way but uh but I definitely if i'm if I'm reading a post like that about a document, i'll scroll scroll to the document first um, mm-hmm. so
0: it sort of reminds me I think NPR had a uh, April Fool's joke this year, I don't remember whether you saw this where they they put a post about libraries going away or books going away or something, nobody reading anymore or something along those lines. And then if you clicked on it and the story was, ha, April fools, we want to see who's going to comment on this post without actually reading the story. And Uh then later they did a story about all the people who made comments about how they were still reading books and going to the library. Um, You
1: know, Uh I I brought joy to my heart. I was like, Oh, it's not just me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess Slate has a fairly liberal uh, reader comment section. Do you ever get comments either on the Slate site or on Twitter or on other places where people hostile to the work you're doing or, or reading things in, in ways that uh, surprise or shock you?
1: You know, I, I feel like, well, this is something maybe I, I don't know if I should admit or not, but I don't read the comment section. Um, that's
0: probably wise.
1: Um, um, and actually I think I can admit it because I've seen other slate writers admit that in public so I don't think it's like it's that bad but I do though read the emails that I get um, you know I have a, a website with a comment form so that is linked to from my bio so you know people can go there and email me and then of course on Twitter mm-hmm. um, I don't I, I, I've rarely had it's interesting. I rarely have conservative pushback. Um, if there's, if and maybe this is, has something to do with the way I write, which I think is like pretty detached or non editorial. And of course, like there's a lot of hidden editorial that happens in the way that I pick things. Mm-hmm. And actually, I have gotten comments from people who say, How come you never, how come you rarely have stuff that's not American? Um, or how come, you know, I think. I actually think that critique is a very valid one and it sort of bothers me when I get it. Cause I'm like, Oh, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, not a conservative critique, obviously that's a liberal one in some ways. Um, and I, I feel like more often I've had contact with people who, you know, if, whenever I write about anything military, I get ready for con- a lot of comments, um, or, or emails, not in a, a sort of critical way, but in a, um, like a correcting kind of way. Cause I think there's a lot of people who are interested in military history who know a lot about the details. Um, and so when I write military stuff, I try really hard to get the details correct. I mean, I always try really hard to get the details correct, but, um, in particular in those instances. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, I've gotten, People who have thought that, or you know, I've gotten corrections or, or pushback from people who have thought that I um, have not been sort of, have not called, called out, uh, like, okay, so the, the example that I'm thinking of is that I wrote a post on the, this document called a histo map, which is from the thirties um and it's just a big sort of visualization of uh all of history um and it's really tall it's one of those like sort of tall chart like um, visualizations um and it went the the post for whatever reason went really viral this is I think yeah. in fall here um and whenever that happens, I get a lot more um uh, many emails <laughs> um and I I got a lot of emails from people who were upset that I hadn't more clearly stated that the guy who made the histo map was ignored, had basically ignored all of South America yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and
0: Sub-Saharan Africa and yeah. Yeah. Those
1: things. Um, and honestly, I felt, I felt like they were right. Like I was like, Oh, I should have said something about that. But part of the thing is about slate is that the, um, you know, the editorial policy is that, you know, it's, it's it's sort of like you can update posts if you have said something wrong or if there's new, you know, like factually wrong.
0: Sure.
1: Um, you know, or you, you're supposed to, you're not only you can, but you're supposed to correct those posts and admit to your wrongdoing in an email to the corrections person and sort of own up to it. Something that used to make me feel horrible until I started reading the weekly corrections every week and realized how many people got things wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Better about it, but... Um, but yeah, the, the, but to correct for something like that isn't necessarily in the policy because it's it's more of an angle and less of a like a factual thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't. But but I did feel, you know, like oh, I should have been more aware of that, or you know, I don't know. And this is a a big difference between obviously between writing academically and writing in this way that I'm writing now, which is to say that people write me immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people write me with all kinds of. Um, you know, corrections and perspectives and things to say, but not something you get when you write a journal article no,
0: no, if you get if you get one email from that saying nice article, then then that's a, you know, a
1: Shock it up in the wind column
0: so i um, one of the you made a written an article a few months ago that I really found very interesting. It was about the way in which history was appearing on Twitter
1: oh yeah,
0: and about uh, I know that also probably went viral to, to a large degree the your your unhappiness with, with a lot of these uh, history and pics and other kinds of Twitter feeds that uh, have a lot of followers but don't necessarily do history in a very, uh, I guess, robust or, or uh, I don't want to say responsible because I'm not quite sure we want to say people are practicing history responsibly, but uh, in sort of a decontextualized way. Yeah. Um, what got you first interested in in the ways in which history was appearing on Twitter?
1: Well, uh, as I said, I, I run a history Twitter account. I mean, technically, it's attached to the blog, but it ends up being, um, you know, I, I I post a lot of stuff on it um, that's not, you know, blog posts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as part of that, you know, I started following a lot of history Twitter accounts, thinking you know that I would you know see it sort of learn from people who have already been doing it or see you know what people were doing um, and I started seeing tweets from these the sort of like sub subculture of history Twitter accounts um, getting tweeted into my feed a lot from you know friends and follow you know people that I follow um, and so I started following them and I just they infuriated me <laughs> I don't know um, I I I I I feel like whenever someone is doing something that is like what you're doing, but where they're
0: not doing it as well,
1: or like, I guess, from my perspective, not as well, but, but, but they're taking, they're basically, t- they're basically taking the part of my brain that says, like, just go for it, like, don't mess around with all this context, like, don't mess around with, uh you know, a trying to bring diversity of perspectives or, or, you know, talk about stuff that people might not already know about, um, you know, just go for the gold, like go for the gusto, and, and that is not a large part of my brain. That's like maybe 3% or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like, I, I don't know. I, it, it's, it's hard to see people doing that and then getting literally a million followers. <laughs> um, cause it's sort of, you know, it always makes us sort of wonder, you know what are we doing wrong or like what what is the um you know what's the difference between us and them in some way um and so i struggled with writing that piece i tried i mean the reason why i wrote it the way i did which is to say that i looked at i, I basically did i counted the tweets from the, the sort of the biggest accounts um the biggest history pictures accounts um for a week i i coded them like you know, to basically do a content analysis um of what they were tweeting about and whether they responded to people and whether they attributed and whether they included dates. Um because I you know, through following them, since I'd sort of hate followed them for a couple of weeks, I sort of, you know, I'd noticed these trends, but I I really wanted to be sure that I was actually seeing what I was seeing. Um And I was nervous about it because I don't really write, as I sort of mentioned, you know, I don't really write stuff that is, um, that's sort of like outrage provoking or like, that's not necessarily true. Um,
0: But it's not intentionally critical of others.
1: Yes, I guess I should say that, you know, and there's a lot of that kind of writing on the internet. Um, and I'm not, that's not my normal mode Mm -hmm. um, necessarily. So you know, I try, I was like, I'm going to be sure that what I think is happening is actually happening. Um, and you know, for an even better analysis, one could do a whole year, which would, I think, need some kind of like machine tool, Mm -hmm. um, some kind of script or something, um, to get to be done. But, um, so yes, I did that. And then I, you know, I, I sort of saw that what I thought was true was true, which is that they were basically never attributing and never, we're really dating the pictures, um, sort of assuming that, you know, I'm part of the problem is that a lot of times the pictures that they use are of people who are very well known, um, either celebrity celebrities, mm-hmm. just, you know, pict- old pictures of Madonna,
0: or, or Bob um, Marley or, you know,
1: Bob Marley or Bob Bill, Dylan. Yeah. yeah. Um, or weirdly, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, they're like <laughs> obsessed with. Um, but the, or historical celebrities. So, uh, you know, Kennedy and sometimes even uh, yeah, basically Kennedy. I should say. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and so part of the thing with that is that if you use those people, you don't really I mean, you should date, you should always date, I think. But with those people, you don't necessarily have to date as much because um, people are going to sort of vaguely know this is, you know, this is the sort of the what's I think is the theory of the way these tweets go viral in some way. It's like they don't bur- they don't overburden you with information. <laughs> like it's sort of a direct sort of like hit to the pleasure center of your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Here's yeah, a picture
0: and- of Madonna. I haven't seen before, so I'll share it with everybody. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Like she looks so young here is really the sort of extent of the reaction.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't, I don't know. And then one of the things that bothered me the most about it was that those tweets rarely have links to anything, which I think a lot of people. And you know, I I hope that in my article I gave full credit, and I think I did to the people who would made these critiques before, because plenty of people have made the critique that the a lot of the photos are, you know, those accounts will fall for fakes really easily. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the famous one is the, or in my mind, the most famous because I'm fascinated by. The internet's love of tesla but there's a there was a photo of nikola tesla supposedly when he was a swimming instructor really? um, never was he wasn't but uh, but this photo is of a you know a edwardian looking gentleman um on the beach sort of stretched out in a bathing costume with a lady um and he sort of looks like tesla but it's not mm-hmm. um and so you know that one that's a pretty viral like history and pics classic. Um, and so before I wrote this article, uh, the blogger, Matt Novak, who's blogs as Paleo Future on the Gizmodo blog, mm-hmm. had begun a series of sort of debunking, um, debunking internet photos posts, which are pretty entertaining. Um, and he, you know, he debunked the Tesla post. Um, but, uh, But what, you know, so that had been something people had pointed out and people had also sort of discussed the, the, the way that the photos don't ever credit the photographer. They never say who the photographer is. But what also bothered me and continues to bother me when I see them retweeted into my feed is that there's no place to go. There's no link to, you know, where I found this photo, mm-hmm. which is something that has to do with giving credit, but also something that has to do with um, he, just revealing more of the internet to people. <laughs> um, so
0: you know, I think I th- you know one thing we're all taught you know in, in graduate school or beforehand is that you know documents only have meaning when they have a context.
1: Exactly.
0: Uh, and you know that's what the vault does well is it provides sort of the context for for the pretty picture you're looking at or the document you're trying to read to to have it make sense and without that context it doesn't mean much of anything.
1: Um, and also it's sort of like a, a and, and you know it's it's almost like a, the the people who run these accounts can't really do that because a lot of times what the, where they're getting the photos from is just you know another photo website like a like imgur or like tumblr or pinterest like these places that don't have context either
0: mm-hmm.
1: when i tweet through the, the vault's twitter account i try or i always i should say include a link to um you know the place where i got it which for me is usually a digital archive or a Flickr you know one of the Flickr commons mm-hmm. um, collections that are from archives or museums, um and so then what I hope, and you know I know I have no idea whether this happens or how often it happens, or et cetera, but you know maybe someone clicks on that and like a someone clicking on that could find the metadata that the archive has associated with the image, um which you know some of which I'll include in the tweet, but some of which you know might be interesting to them beyond that um, you know, you could click, for example, like on the name of the photographer or. Then you can click on the name of um, the collection and see what else is in the collection. Um, or, you know, failing your question not being answered there, you could email the archivist or the mm-hmm. museum, or, you know, whoever. It's just like a, I don't know. I think that's what drives me the most crazy about those accounts is that there's so much, uh, you know, historical information and so many people who are trying working really hard to get all of this really mm-hmm. good, you know, historical context out on the internet who are professionals and not to be elitist about it, but you know, is their job. Um, and it's, it's not really necessarily revealed, I think to people it, or maybe it is, but in, in a, maybe, I don't know, in a, in a sort of like hit or miss way.
0: Sure. Well, I mean, I worked at a, on a digitization project when I was at UNC when I was in graduate school, I helped, sort of launched their southern historical collection digitization progress and it was very hard to figure out how to get people interested in going to the site and and how to get them to learn how to navigate it and and and, but the hardest part was always was was trying to justify all the time and money we were putting into it to uh, Mm -hmm. you know people funding agencies and whatnot when they say look you know no one's really looking at this why should we spend so much money so i think one of the great sort of side effects of, of the of the vault is that now a lot of these archives are getting a lot more hits than they used to. And then they can take that to digitize a lot more stuff, which I think is desperately needed.
1: I really hope that's true. Um, I mean, you know, I don't have numbers. I've never, heard, I have heard anecdotal evidence of increased traffic, but, uh, you don't have numbers, but you know, that's one of my major hopes is that, you know, this is totally utopian, <laughs> but, uh, but I do hope that, you know, I hope that people looking either looking at the Twitter account or looking at the at the blog itself might say, Oh my gosh, I never knew that this collection existed. You know, now I'm I'm gonna go look at it or, you know, oh my my mom might be interested in this. Or, you know, try to just to increase the circulation in some way.
0: Well, I know lots of people use the the, the vault to help in their classroom and they either at the high school or at the university level where they use the documents and
1: that pleases me. <laughs> That's good. I'm really glad. <laughs>
0: so you mentioned earlier you just finished a, I guess it was it a two year postdoc at uh, the Philadelphia Air area Center for Science.
1: Yeah, uh, Philadelphia Area Center for History of Science.
0: Oh, History of Science. Sorry. And so, what, what was it you were doing there?
1: Well, I finished my my dissertation was about. Um, it's an American Studies dissertation at, at UT Austin, and I, it was about the history of science promotion and childhood in the 20th century in the U.S. Um, And so on that basis, I got a history of science uh, postdoc. And the uh, Philadelphia Area Center for History of Science, which they call themselves PAC, you know, in P-A-C-H-S, in uh, casual conversation, um, is a wonderful place for many reasons, but... uh, one of the things that's great about it is that it is a consortium that brings together uh, the archives and museums and, and universities in the Philadelphia area that are interested in, you know, the do history of science. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a lot of sort of community building associated with it. So, um, you know, they, they administer fellowships, they have a postdoc and um, two dissertation writing fellowships and a lot of uh, research fellowships. So if anyone wants to do research in the Philadelphia area on history of science topics, there's money there. Uh, But, uh, but, you know, as the postdoc I was, um, you know, doing, doing research working on my uh, book proposal, um, starting to present on my quote unquote second project, (laughs) um, which is about, uh, environmentalism and childhood in the seventies, eighties and nineties, um, and sort of how, people have talked to kids about dark topics, um, within environmentalism. Mm-hmm. And so, so,
0: yeah. I was, I was curious how, how you got interested in this intersection between the history of childhood and the history of science. Cause I don't think that's an intersection that's been explored probably as much as it needs to be.
1: Yeah. I, um, I, actually don't, I don't know. It's funny. You know, everyone has a good origin origin story for their interest. Um, I've been interested in history of childhood, history of youth for a long time. Um, actually since my undergrad, uh, I did my undergrad at Yale and I wrote my, uh, senior thesis in the American studies department on, uh, Columbine, which hmm. had happened right around then. So at that point I wasn't, and it kind of didn't consider myself a history person, which is funny now cause it's like my life. Um, but, uh, I, so I wrote that and then, you know, I wrote between, um, undergrad and grad school, I worked at a teen magazine, um, which was YM, which then died in 2004, no longer exists. Um,
0: how'd you and, get involved with that?
1: Oh man. Uh, yeah. A whole other topic. I, I loved as a, as a youth, <laughs> I loved Sassy, which okay. is a dear departed, uh, teen magazine that from the late eighties and early nineties, um, that was sort of a, I don't know. I don't want to say revolutionary that makes it sound really dramatic, but it sort of was, um, you know, as a feminist teen magazine that was very sort of informal first person written in first person. Um, a lot of intersections with sort of indie rock and riot girl and those kinds of early nineties music slash social movement mm-hmm. ideas. And so I loved sassy and, um, their staff of it, since they wrote in first person and were very personal in their writing, um, you know, I sort of felt like I knew them. And I think that's sort of the success of the magazine in some ways. Um, so when I moved to New York after graduating, I saw that there was a open position there at YM. And um, I saw that, or I heard that one of the editors from Sassy was the executive editor there. And so, um, you know, I want to work at a magazine. I want to write and I thought, um, you know, this could be a, a good thing. Um, so I got hired there and sort of struggled <laughs> for three years with it. Um, you know, I always say that it actually. You know, I wrote the I wrote features and um, I wrote the sort of more I don't want to say serious side of the magazine, but I wrote. You know, I wrote the college page. I wrote a couple of advice columns, um, and I wrote longer stories about. Um, you know girls in various situations. So, you know, I wrote a story about a girl who was in the LDS church, but loved punk rock and, you know, how she handled that sort of complex stuff like that. Um, and it was, you know, when I went back to graduate school um, and I sort of, you know, a lot of what I write about is adults making culture for kids <laughs> and how that works. Um, and, I really think that actually working at YM was a a big sort of um, I don't know, wake up call, but it was very, you know, I was right at, I was doing it basically, you know, mm. I was, I was being instructed and I was sort of mediating my own ethics and desires and, you know, ideas about the world with the, you know, the, the commercial imperatives of working at a magazine that had a lot of advertising um, and, you know, seeing how, and also mediated by the desires of my editors. Um, and so, you know, it was a sort of a practicum in seeing how culture gets made. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it was actually really helpful when I think about sort of looking at the institutions that I looked at in my dissertation and what they thought kids wanted um, and how they used those ideas to, to make the things that they made.
0: So what was it about the, the science in the 20th century that, that sort of, drove you to, to look at the ways in which science was being sold to children?
1: I was always interested in, I mean, I've been interested in um, sort of I- idealized conceptions of how children should be,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um, which is, you know, a major concern of childhood studies, of course, um, and what those idealized concerns say about what people think about their own lives or the culture. Um, and I was writing, I wrote my master's thesis on, this is going to sound, it always sounds funny when I say it, but it was actually really awesome. Uh, I wrote my master's thesis on celebrity sled dogs in the early 20th century. So during the gold rush and afterwards, there were a lot of, uh, Alaskan dogs that sort of became animal celebrities. Really? Oh yes. (laughs) Um, uh, well, the most famous one is Balto, the one who brought the diphtheria serum to, um, to the, the one with the
0: statue in Central Park.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. He's the most famous one and he has a really interesting story. But there are a bunch of other sort of ersatz Baltos, but <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, toward the department stores of uh, the lower 48. Um, and as part of that, there was a big, you know, sort of there's a lot of kids books, as you might maybe expect, mm-hmm. um, and sort of associations with the childhood there. Um, And, uh, you know, in in doing the sort of the bibliographical reading for that, I got, you know, the historiography I got interested in, or, you know, I had to read about uh, the history of the nature study movement, which is an early 20th century um, curriculum movement to try to get kids outside more, which sounds familiar now. Sure. Uh, But so Sally Colsta had written, you know, has written a a book about it um, called Teaching Children Science. And one of the really interesting conflicts within the early 20th century um, world of thinking about kids and science is sort of this not conflict but um, sort of confluence of nature study which is has a lot of sort of moral and religious and ethical inflections um, and aesthetic also aesthetic inflections. so um, you know teaching kids about nature is also teaching them about the harmony of God or the, you know, the the sort of like a 19th century idea that gets carried over into early 20th century, um, you know, curricula. Um, And then there is at the same time, there's sort of a growing, um, you know, interest in the technological adeptness of kids. So this is also a gendered story because a lot of times the nature study is gendered female and, the boys who were really into aviation or wireless radio, um, or, or just considered to be, you know, obsessed with trains, you know, yeah. uh, just considered to be sort of more comfortable with the, the new, the big new technologies of the early 20th century. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I, I, that was when I first started muddling around it is when I, I realized that these, that th- these things were happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, there was this real interest in getting kids out into nature, but there was also this real interest in technology um, or sort of like a like an enjoyment of thinking about kids being good at technology, which is something that happens now as well. Um, and uh, and so I modeled around a, a bunch when I was thinking about my um, you know, thinking about sort of like the uh, idealizations of natural and technological landscapes and how is it that kids are seen in both of them in various ways? Um, and that's sort of how I got to thinking about it as different conceptions of what it means to be interested in science, um, because both of those things are obviously sort of permutations of uh, scientific culture or different kinds of ways of thinking about being a like a scientist in training. Um, sure. And from that, it expanded into thinking about it across the twentieth century.
0: I imagine there's a whole lot of sort of Cold War elements on on top of all of that. Mm-hmm. Once we get after World War II, so mm-hmm. so is this is the book done and, and about to hit the press, or is it?
1: Uh, I wish. Um,
0: still <laughs> incubating some.
1: Um, it is right now. With it is hope, hopefully, knock on wood, um, in the end, processes of getting a contract. <laughs> um, I can't say, I don't know. I don't know how much I can say necessarily.
0: Um, That's okay.
1: Yeah. Um, well, hopefully but,
0: it'll be out shortly.
1: But after that happens, I'll still have to do revision. So it'll, i still be a year at least. <laughs> don't hold your breath.
0: Okay. So while while waiting on that, what else is on uh, store for you in the coming future?
1: I keep on doing the blog. Um, and I'm going to, be writing longer pieces. Hopefully I've started doing that already to some degree. Um, one of which you mentioned earlier, but I've also been writing longer pieces, um, for other places besides slate, um, that are historically oriented. Um, if a con- book contract comes through, I'll be working on the book. Um, I'm working on a, 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 article for the Oxford handbook for history and material culture. Um, which I went, just went to, a meeting of all the writers for that in New York, which was really fun. It's being, um, you know, sort of co-edited, but co-edited by two editors from the Bar graduate center and the chipstone foundation. Um, so that's due at the end of the summer. <laughs> Got to work on that. And that one's about the regulation of chemistry sets, um, in the 19, late 1960s and early 1970s. They don't, they don't really
0: have those anymore. Do they? I remember, ha- I remember having one when I was a kid, but, uh,
1: not in the same way, necessarily. They're more project-oriented and some of the elements have been taken out. Um, yeah, so... I'm yeah, I think be... I
0: made nitroglycerin by mistake once with mine, so I think that's probably a good idea. Um...
1: Well, what fascinates me is how many you know scientists and people who are interested in science have those sort of stories um, and how much sort of mourning there is over the loss of those sets. Um, but you know, as a person who's interested in... The weird ways that we think about childhood. I'm sort of interested in the way that that morning um, does or does, does not take into account the actual injuries that occurred, yeah. um, uh, which is sort of an interesting set of questions about risk and and safety um, in the U.S. in the late 20th century. So but, yeah.
0: So the the vault's going to be alive and well for the foreseeable future, then.
1: I would yep. <laughs>
0: Well, excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming in and talking with me today. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thanks. This was really fun.
0: Well, that's my conversation with Rebecca Onion. If you'd like to see some of her work at the Slate Vault blog, I'm going to put a link on this show's website to many of my favorite of her uh, postings there. As always, the site for the show is AmericanHistoryUntucked.blogspot.com. You can follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Till next time.